0: The views and opinions expressed are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any company. Any content provided should be considered their opinion and are not intended to be interpreted as an endorsement. Today's topic is a look into the life of a scientist solving a problem. Welcome to our Solutions for Nano Analysis podcast brought to you by Bruker Nano Analytics. We look forward to bringing you a new podcast regularly. My name is Cody Morton. I'm a marketing communications specialist at Bruker Nanoanalytics and an information enthusiast. If you like to learn from specialists in their field and hear what technologies are solving their problems, you will enjoy this podcast. Every session, we will focus on a different problem that our colleagues face in the lab and in the field. Some of the solutions will be a variation of ideas you may have heard before or even worked with. We will bring you these topics in a new and interesting way and introduce you to updated and thought-provoking results. We will talk about how the problem was dealt with in the past and what we're doing to solve the problem now and perhaps even envision future solutions. Join us as we talk solutions with a variety of scientists and technicians in many different industries in the Solutions for Nanoanalysis podcast. Welcome our guest today, Dr. Lee Drake. Lee is a former Bruker employee that has taken his XRF know-how to the artificial intelligence and beyond, helping with the refugee displacement, being uh, integrated into new homes, and uh, helping save the world, if I might be speaking a little too big about it. But Lee, let's talk about what you're doing these days.
1: Well, all my updates pertain to artificial intelligence and special operations. (laughs) So, Is that um, true? Yeah, no, it is true. So there's actually, there's a New York Times article with one of the folks I helped rescue in Afghanistan, um, I, I got really, I got really involved with Afghan resettlement and helping get people to safety who are being targeted by the Taliban. I started a company that does artificial analysis, uh, artificial intelligence with XRF. And unfortunately, I've got a, like I, I've got a stack of NDAs that's intimidating, so I can't go into too many details on the specifics. But but there's a lot of really, really, really cool things you can do with X-rays. And artificial intelligence to like extract properties that I didn't even think was possible. Also true for your transform infrared spectroscopy and all that. So, and then I also used the AI st- tools to help help with the refugee resettlement. So one of my favorite little ch- things was building a passport scanner because we got you know people were sending us uh, images of their passports taken on a cell phone. You can imagine trying to build a plane manifest with that kind of information. So I used Face ID to recognize where someone's face is in the passport, and then barcode scan it in for manifesting so all open source on my github but
0: excellent very good well i didn't know you were doing such non-disclosure type of activities i appreciate you taking time to talk to me it may be a very short podcast with what you're allowed to share (laughs) Uh, so lee drake let's start with you have a doctorate correct yeah in something what's your doctorate in
1: i got my phd in um archaeology at the University of New Mexico in 2012. My my dissertation was focused on uh, using carbon isotopes to infer a past climatic change. And one of my favorite papers uh, that I did during my dissertation work was Basically, saying that, you know, hey, you know, this collapse that happened because of the economy actually it was climate change. And that was the late Bronze Age collapse, it helped inspire a book and some TV shows. And also kind of led to a change in how we perceived that particular event historically. But it was a team effort. I was one of many researchers who was part of the trend of saying, hey, this isn't what it seems. But as you can imagine, the job market is not great for, you know, there, there aren't a lot of people looking to hire do- uh, doomsayers like myself when it comes to that. <laughs> so, you know, I'd started working. Working, on, working with the Tracer, which is one of Brooker's products, as a grad student in a very critical role. I think my role was to identify a problem in one of the calibrations. And we published a paper and we got a very strong response from Brooker from it because we'd found there was a systematic bias in the calibration, like something eminently correctable. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I got my PhD, Brooker reached out and said, we'd like to hire you. And I'm like, really like I was really critical of the tracer and they're like we want you to find that problem before you go ahead and publish them (laughs) (laughs) we want we want to have part of our business be fixing this these problems before they show up so everyone's academic research is as good as it possibly can be so I was really impressed with that like it's it reminded me of like like this is a like not not the same moral equivalence, but I, I've always been inspired by how Abraham Lincoln, a former president, hired his rivals to build a powerful team. And that was very much how that particular group of broker was. They're reaching out to their strongest critics and saying, hey, do you want to work together to fix this? And I yeah, I really yeah. admire that. I really admire that. So I said yes.
0: Was this partially because the technology at the time was so new handheld XRF was still kind of the new kid oh, yeah. on the block?
1: And Absolutely. so Brooker
0: was like, we want to be the new kid on the block, but doing it right.
1: Exactly. It, it, that's exactly right. And like, I think there was a, there was a real interest at the time, which was the applications for this technology are going to grow faster than the rules for how to use it appropriately, which is a completely understandable concern. And by the way, one that you know, especially when it comes to refugee resettlement, it's the exact same thing there too. Like, you know, there there are consequences to moving fast and breaking things. Brooker at the time was really struggling with, you know, obviously there's that we want to get as many sales as possible because this is a cool new toy, but also we want to make sure it's used appropriately because I think folks at Brooker recognize that, you know, if we get too many publications that say like, nope, these results are erroneous, you can't just pick a flashy science gun to solve your problems, that would hurt things in the long term, so I think there's a real right. effort to grow grow, grow. What's the, what is it, the Brooker tagline? I don't know if it's still the same, uh, innovation with integrity. Yeah, it yeah. was very much that, like in a very mm-hmm. visceral sense, like mm-hmm. do that. And when they hired me, my job, my wife called it, I think my wife was on this podcast, she was one of our ago. first interviewees, yeah, but she called it the science fairy job where Brooker would like. Paradrop me into a museum or a research institute and say solve their problems with the with their XRF and we'd solve the problems and move on to the next one I think when I did the tally in the four in the four and a half years I I, I did that I visited 50 countries most of them repeat visits and then almost every state I've still met I've still met my goal of not visiting Florida though not even for a little (laughs) I don't know how that (laughs) happened but um yeah that's anyway. very
0: unusual that florida would be the one state you hadn't visited
1: right? it's, <laughs> it's a weird combo i don't know how that emerged
0: yeah so when you left brooker did you start up with your own company right away or did you go was, and do other things
1: i, I did I, I went i became vice president of a small company called um paleo the paleo research institute which is based in golden colorado and there it was very much a laboratory like we did xrf we also did radiocarbon dating a macro analysis all that but i had a lot of time to code custom solutions for clients so one of the things i started getting into was building an open source platform called CloudCal. the background of this is i was helping with the EasyCal cal development for the uh, for the handheld and there were the, i kind of felt like God, there's a couple of things I'd like to do, but I'm I'm not a software developer. So I can I can I can criticize, I can throw darts, but like I can't change that software other than like being a re- like being the alpha tester or the beta tester. So I decided I'm gonna try building an open source way to do a LucasTooth and all those calibrations. And I, it worked. I was able to build this infrastructure where you could bring in Spectra and it'll support PDZ. I'm still looking for help to get some of the newer, newer spectra formats in, but usually it works best with the open source CSV files. But you load in the spectrum, you can choose your Slope intercept corrections. I came up with a few normalization techniques, and then one day I thought, like, I could machine learning do any of this? So I started exploring some machine learning algorithms, some basic stuff like random forests. And then it spun wildly out of control from there, and I got into neural networks and all. But one of the early findings was there are two things I came across. First, machine learning was really effective. Like, so there was one project uh, with one of our. One of the Brooker customers I worked with considerably, which was uh, the World Agroforestry Center, there they were using the tracer to do analysis of fertilizers and organic materials to help subsistence farmers. So the idea being you hop in with one of these small XRFs, you analyze someone's products or someone's crop, and you can give them very targeted advice on what to do. My favorite example of this is there was a soybean farmer who was very rich who had the best soybeans. I and mean, he said, you know, you use pure phosphorus fertilizer. And all of his, the local folks in the same village who were poor couldn't afford the same fertilizer. So they bought a cheaper phosphorus fertilizer. Their soybeans weren't as good. So they had someone come in who analyzed the soybeans. And what they found was that the poor farmers were getting pure phosphorus fertilizer cheap, but that the rich farmer was actually being ripped off. They were diluting his phosphorus fertilizer with gypsum, which is calcium sulfate. But soybeans need the sulfur to make methionine, which is the protein that makes them a substitute for animal meat. So the dilution was actually improving So that was really
0: what was paying off for him, not the more expensive.
1: Exactly. That he he was getting. Yeah, exactly. So the good news is they said, we've got great news. Everyone can save 90% on their fertilizer by just buying plaster of Paris and putting in their soybean fields and forgetting, like maybe a little bit of phosphorus will help, but like really what you want is sulfur. So we were working with them, but they had this problem where a lot of these farmers will use organic manures. Now, organic manures basically cow poop or whatever livestock poop you have, but we call it organic fertilizer because it it sounds a lot nicer than poop. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, but the problem with this industry is that some people are unethical. And when they go to scoop up the poop, they might dig the shovel a little deep and get some dirt in there. And then they sell it by weight. And of course, dirt has more mass. So the question was, can we use XRF and and infrared, MIR, Uh, mid-range infrared to identify these pollutants. The idea was using XRF to identify the ash, and then using MIR to identify stuff like nitrogen and carbon. These results, by the way, are published and openly accessible on our article at PLOS, authored by Eric Taouet, formerly of the World Agroforestry Center. Um, But they're available over there, published in 2020. But I decided, let's try machine learning. Let's see what that can do. And to our great surprise, machine learning absolutely leveled the playing field between XRF and MIR. We could use machine learning to identify carbon and nitrogen in the organic fertilizer. We can't, like handheld XRF cannot see carbon and nitrogen elements you know, as direct colors, but we can read from the scatter of the photons and the matrix, the patterns associated with those elements. The other surprise was MIR traditionally struggles with sort of elements like phosphorus and sulfur. That was seen as and, and, and potassium. That was the role of XRF. We found that with MIR, we could actually infer those, 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 uh, those nutrients using the machine learning, same machine learning algorithms as well. I think our, so what we do typically machine learning like machine learning first off almost always works. So you can't just say, Hey, here's a really good result and go with it. You have to take a group of the samples away and see if you can still accurately predict those. And that's known as randomized cross-validation. We basically mm-hmm. tell the computer, you know, grab 20% of the data points, throw them over here, and let's revisit those once we've built our model to see if it works. We were at 0.99 across the board for for carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur on both sets of equipment. So it worked really well. It very much surprised us. But my takeaway from that experience, and I can talk about that. I can't talk about the, all of the NDA stuff because there's a lot more along those lines you can right, do sure, learning. Right, sure, sure. But the big takeaway was that machine learning is empirical calibration on steroids. Now, mm-hmm. there are two kinds of calibration there's fundamental parameters, which is where you use physics. To project out and say this is based on pure physical principles here's what we can do and then you can use empirical analysis which goes the exact opposite way we're going to start with the data and then see what we can do from there machine learning is just empirical analysis on steroids it radically expands what you can do with that but it still plays by the same rules so like we can say we can see carbon and nitrogen but only in organic fertilizers mixed with some amount of dirt, so to speak. But from a practical perspective, we can use that application and we can now scale it up, right? So especially with the food crisis that the world is looking at now, Mm -hmm. with the Russian and Ukraine war taking off a lot of grain supplements for developing farmers... They're going to be looking at, you know, fertilizer decisions are going to be really important, especially since a lot of fertilizer is not going to be available on the market due to this war. And I think XRF can play an extraordinarily beneficial role in basically optimizing the weak hand of cards we have because you can make better, smarter decisions using that. I think machine learning adds to what we can do. But even if you just use the XRF as a simple counter for potassium or sulfur or phosphorus, you'll still be able to do a lot of good in terms of micromanaging what, what, what you actually need.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a lot of great information. It's nice to hear that technology keeps building and keeps moving forward. Now, you had mentioned that you got your PhD in archaeology. As a kid, were you interested in science, or did you just kind of like everything and land in
1: science? You know, I started off with dinosaurs, oddly enough. I grew up in a small Wyoming town and we had a local dinosaur museum. And one day I showed up and I'm like, I'll mop the floors, I'll do anything, just let me hang out here. And so they put me on the dig sites as a high schooler and I was able to do science fairs and all that jazz, pay my way through college. But I think, you know, I moved to archeology span Because I loved paleontology, but it felt kind of like trophy collecting. Like, look at this cool boat I found. And I think one of my big motivators was like, how do you use science to help people? And obviously inspiring people to learn more about science using dinosaurs is fantastic. I used to joke that paleontology is a gateway drug for science. Like you start with dinosaur bones, but then you get interested in other topics within the scientific fields that take you in different directions. And so I moved over to archaeology because I thought I can do this thing that I like, which is digging in the dirt, but I can use it to, you know, like with the late Bronze Age collapse, learn what can happen. And so I, that's what I got my, my, my dissertation in. And I was able to say, yeah, so it looks like agricultural collapse really precedes the fall of civilizations. But then I thought, well, if archaeology is going to do something, like, I can't just publish that and do nothing. I now know what the problem is. And that's what attracted me to XRF, is we can use XRF to help identify those problems in, in agriculture. The fact of that paper was was that, you know, large-scale migrations destabilized the area. If you Google about the late Bronze Age collapse, you'll come across the Sea Peoples. And the Sea Peoples are really just all the folks who were living in cities, there's no more food and people don't just wait for their turn to starve. They move and you see Mm -hmm. broad spread migration. So that, that, that also brought me to refugee resettlement, which is a lot of my work in Afghanistan. There's some stuff coming up the pipe where we're going to be able to expand to other countries that I can't go into too many details yet. Sure. Sure. Partners that'll be coming in September, but you know, we think we've, we think we've identified a really a, a problem we can solve to kind of distribute the refugee load. Cause the goal is, is not to overwhelm anyone with refugees, but like figure out, you know, what are the protocols for each country to make sure everyone, everyone does their fair share to help with these kinds of, these kinds of problems. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Now you had mentioned a New York times article that's coming out or it was just out. It, yeah.
1: It, it, it came out in October 16th. So, um, when the, when Kabul fell in mid August, I, Volunteer. I, I had some time. One of the nice things about running your own business is there's no boss to tell you how to spend your time. So I could just kind of decide I'm going to make time for this problem. I can do sure. that. Most people yeah. can't. I can. So I decided to help with the University of Pittsburgh. They had a, a Center of, of Markets and Governance, CMG, and there or CGM, sorry, Center for Governance and Markets, and under uh, Dr. Jennifer Mustavasky and Murtagh Valley. That's it. And when I was working, and I volunteered to basically help with their email overload because they got. A 1000 emails a day, basically. And then I started reaching out to those families. In any case, and it it became just it was it was the hardest point of my life. First, my son was having the worst sleep regression. So I was up every hour at the night with a screaming, screaming toddler. But also I was getting an email or a text message about every 10 seconds with a new family begging for help. I mean, you obviously can't do everything. Right. But I got an image of a girl with uh, second degree chemical burns. It was very graphic. It is in the New York Times article that was by uh, Helen Miller published on October 16th. So, like, you know, warning there if you're, if it's sensitive photos like that are difficult. The good news is she's fine, everything ends well. But but basically, she had been hit by a tear gas can at the uh, abbey gate in the uh, kabul airport i i I had a total meltdown i i I was very undecorous in how I handled getting that because I realized, and it was true i'm going to get a lot more like this every time someone's hurt they're gonna they're gonna be looking for help sure so mm-hmm. so anyway, I reached out and I got a hold of someone who was tight with special forces. And within a day, I was in communication with the White House, members of Congress, both sides of the aisle, like it, like, because what we learned was, is this girl who probably had 24 hours to live before sepsis set in with these second secondary chemical burns. She never knew her father because her father worked as an engineer and was killed by the Taliban around the time she was born. So the idea that this, and the tear gas can that hurt her was from American and Afghan forces trying to distribute the crowd, because as this is the same gate where the terrorist attack occurred, they understood that large crowds here were an attractive target for ISIS-K. So it was a very hard situation, but her need got everyone's attention. And so we ended up, went high enough to change, special forces... I can't go into too many sure, details. no, I won't go We're talking about doing. the article. We're
0: talking yeah, about the yeah, article. Yeah. It's, it's
1: a, the New York Times article has more details. But after a couple failed attempts, they managed to get to a base where she got helped. So life-saving medical intervention was applied. Then she was taken to the airport. From there, things got worse in a way because people were being thrown out of the airport even after getting into it. And so we were trying to keep, and the the I was in touch with her older brother who had 17% battery life left on his phone and we had to drag that out for about uh 20 hours as oh we my did periodic check-ins to try and get someone to get his family onto a flight then everything we he, i got a last message saying someone's here no communication for 36 hours then a picture of her holding a big teddy bear and oh my bar. goodness and really they're, they're they're in the u.s she's she's made a full recovery. Scars are going to be minimal. She's making new friends in school. I can't say where she's living or anything like that. No, but, that's
0: okay. That's but okay.
1: But 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 she's safe and I'm working to help the rest of her family as best I can. So
0: Now, did you use XRF technology at all in all of that? Or it just started with this AI... Learning thing started you down the track of my own business using AI technology with XRF. It was
1: yeah, for the refugee resettlement, it's specifically the AI. And the problem I was able to come in and solve was is: you know, there's tens of thousands of people who need help. And there's lots of volunteers, but most volunteers aren't used to quality control of large data sets. Sure. And the one thing working for Brooker taught me is the consequences of inaccuracy are very high right sure. like <laughs> if we give wrong numbers to a client working on a multimillion dollar project we have to solve that go, that goes back to the science fairy
0: right yeah yeah
1: so i brought that to the refugee effort which was basically manifesting Like, there were countries that got plane loads of refugees in, everyone wanted to help, but then there's people with no passports, they weren't on the planes manifest, there were people hiding in the cargo holds, and those countries would stop, say, we we can't accept refugees if you're not telling us who's coming. Very understandable on both sides. You have people who want to help, and the problem is data integrity. The problem is data integrity. So we built, I started a nonprofit known as the Humanitarian Legal Assistance Project, And we partnered with Human First Coalition. Good news there, one of our our leader was released by the Taliban. He was held captive up until April. You can read about him, Safiroff, and a number of news articles about his relief. And we're back back to work. But one of the things we've really focused on, and I can't go into too many details for non-NDA reasons, but like sensitive, but like we really focus on giving high quality, actionable information for those who qualify for international assistance. So, and that that work continues to this day. So, I mean, we'll continue for for the coming years, for the years. And then
0: tell me the name of it again, Humanitarian
1: Humanitarian Legal Assistance Project, HLAP for, for short. And right now, HLAP just we partner with different groups. So we partnered with Human First for Afghanistan in particular, and we're looking to help more broadly with other organizations. We've got an exciting partnership that will be announced think, in September. But our goal is basically to facilitate. We use um, artificial intelligence and big data management to really portion the load of refugee resettlement as best as we can. We're just, and you know, we're, we're a small player. There's lots of wonderful organizations. Sure. Um, but we're, 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 we're all learning together how to do this better at scale in a way that is helpful for everyone, both the refugees who need help, but also the countries who want to have a very good data partner to make sure that they can account for everyone, have reasonable expectations for what services and help they can provide, and for how long. So.
0: And then do you guys have a website?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's humanitarianlegal.org. Okay. And I also want to shout out, I hope they don't, they don't mind, but two Brooker employees, Ossie Sariola and Jonathan Knapp were both instrumental in helping me learn how to scale up with, because, you know, one of the things that I, so when I when I science ferried at Brooker, I was very one-on-one, like, go here, go here, go here. Both Aussie and Jonathan know a lot more about CRM tools and ways to do this at scale. And I was ignorant of all of that. And so they gave me and all the other one, volunteers at HLAP a crash course, and here's how to do that. And that has been instrumental. Like, we have been able to help hundreds using the, t- t- the TIPs, and tricks they taught us in terms of big data management for folks. So I really want to shout out, like, like HLAP has, has really, really benefited from a lot of like non-official, but like very, very helpful partnerships with what Brooker has learned in helping its customers.
0: Oh, sure. Thank you. I'm sure that they would both ah shucks the shout out, but I hope uh... so. I hope so. <laughs> But they are they are still very active at Brooker, so I, I'm sure people will recognize those names. And yeah. is there anything else that you can share that's on your horizon? That are you going to bring XRF back into your world, or are you still moving forward with AI? And you're oh, just
1: a lot of my a lot of my world is still XRF. I don't want to give the wrong impression. I can't discuss specific clients, but most 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 of my i'd say about 80% of my ai work right now is still based on extra in it? a variety of quantitative and qualitative applications sure, so sure. You know, one thing you can use ai to do for example is instead of saying i've got you know 3% iron i've got 6% iron or i've got you know 3% carbon you can use that to put it into bins like sort and, and, and or identify that this matches this, et cetera. So there's a lot you can do with AI. And once again, a shameless plug, CloudCal on my GitHub. So my GitHub is github.com backslash lead five. But CloudCal there is an open source application. Anyone can use it for machine learning with their tracer, titan, or any other X, or even, you know, any other XRF instrument. I even built it for the, I believe the Elio works with it as well. But but yeah, you can import those files. And if you want to try extreme gradient boosting or support vector machines or neural networks, or really any fancy AI buzzword you can think of, you can do that today if you want to. I've got another application there known as Sheet Crunch where you can just upload an Excel spreadsheet and it will do all the hard work of organizing the data. So you can just say, I want to predict this column using this machine learning model and it'll automatically do all the work for you. While I work with my clients, I always let my clients know, just so you know, I'm open sourcing all these solutions for others to use. So all that's available on my GitHub. And, if, and the good news is, if you have a problem with that, which I guarantee you will, because software is complex, you can always like put an issue and I'm pretty quick at responding to any problems that come up.
0: Awesome. I- ironically, when you were just saying about any glitchy thing your camera
1: glitched a little bit oh so (laughs) just like right on cue (laughs) it will
0: glitch perfect perfect
1: you know that's that's the thing right technology is never a guarantee It's a it's it's a it's it's always going to be a work in progress so
0: yeah did you ever think when you were working on your phd for archaeology you'd be doing what you're doing now oh
1: no you know xrf the only reason i was brought on xrf was because i was good at statistics and that's As any anthropologist will tell you, that's not a common tool set. So no, but XRF was very much the crash course and how to develop artificial intelligence for me. I think, yeah, like like I've got some projects that are, you know, focused on non-XRF data, but the vast majority is still, you know, signal processing from an XRF unit, most specifically the tracer. So.
0: Mm -hmm. Excellent. Is there anything else that you want to um, mention or anything that you're um, allowed to tell us about that you're working on?
1: Ooh, good question. You know, I would say that, um, you know, one of the things that I've been really interested in lately is with the artificial intelligence on XRFs is less, how do we predict this really cool property but how do we make a universal calibration for all XRFs? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I'm a lot closer to that now than I've ever been before, where it's not 100%, but like, I'd say if you gave me 100 titans, I could may I could use one one dot quant file, which is the cloud cal output, to accurately predict 80 of them. a lot of it depends on the manufacturing quality and rhodium anode thickness. But one of the things I'm really into, it, one of the things that I, I'm trying to work towards, is having a website where you can upload a spectrum you've collected, and the website can just quantify it it doesn't need to know which unit you have because one of the challenges in xrf is uh, the calibrations have to be tailored to every single instrument and that's a huge investment when you're talking about thousands or tens of thousands of instruments and i'm pretty sure ai can solve that problem Mm -hmm. but yeah so that's one thing i'm looking forward to is hopefully making the calibration step much easier for units writ large
0: very good. Now, I didn't ask yet, how did you end up in the AI world? Was it just the statistics? It was a logical step once, or you saw a movie? No, <laughs> I
1: was actually that that's that's exactly so i was working on cloud cal one night okay. and i was remember thinking like you know someone had asked me it was, a, it, was a, it was a it was a tracer customer i just left brooker a few months a few months earlier and they were saying like you know the really hard thing is like how do you know which slope intercept to choose for an extra thing and i was watching the new blade runner the one with ryan gosling and then i thought I bet I could write an algorithm that could cycle through every possible combination of slope interface slope corrections and pick the best one. And it worked like it took like 30 minutes and I had written an automatic Luke, Lucas tooth calibration tool. And that really got my mind racing. Cause then because <laughs> once you, it took me like, years of coding to learn how to make the very bare bones. How do I just replicate what software does already? But then it was just a few months to go from there to full out AI applications, because the investment in just building the the core part, the core platform is what really took off. You know, so it was kind of wild. Like it took me me a year to figure out how to save a calibration file with my own software. A year, it was very bankless. (laughs) It was boring, it was hard. And then AI came in like 20 minutes while watching watching Blade Runner. So (laughs) anyway, all that is to say, if your job feels boring and all that, it might be leading somewhere. Like (laughs) stick with it. Perseverance pays off.
0: Well, I was just thinking about your whole year working on your project, thinking about I'm older than you. So when I was introduced to computers, we were still learning zeros and ones. And so we learned to code, you know, at the basic, I think they were looking for Bill Gates. They're they're like, we know he's out here somewhere. He was not in my classroom, but we know he's out there somewhere. (laughs) And all Cody wanted to do was play lemonade stand. You know,
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's, you know, it's fun. Like I, I often think that like going back to my old paleo days, like like the best entry point for any kind of difficult topic is finding what you like about it first. Right. Yeah. Like, like going back to, going back to that, like if, if, if playing lemonade stand teaches you to arrange the zeros and the ones better then right. you've got, you got, you found it. You found that thread you can trace to, to the harder problems. So.
0: Yeah. And I found, I just liked working with marketing.
1: <laughs> How yeah. do I
0: sell the lemonade? <laughs> perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Lee, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, Cody. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you to our speakers today. If you would like more information about today's topic or to submit a topic idea, please email info.bna at You can also check out more information in today's show notes. Join us next time as we look at a new solution with more scientists and technicians in all sorts of industries.